in uh, the evening session, actually in the morning session as well, they passed out these sheets. If you haven't filled them out, uh, Creation Science Fellowship is uh, giving, they're having a door prize or something at the end. I think it's a video or a book or your choice. I'm not sure exactly. So if you haven't signed up, uh, you won't you won't win. <laughs> so if anybody would uh, care to do that, all of you got a sheet here last time. There's the extra copies. If anyone uh, didn't get a copy of the outline, I'm really not an upfront person, so it's kind of nervous up here, kind of on stage. Just <laughs> English. Humanities, all that was uh, difficult for me in grade school and growing up. In fact, uh, I went to, my mom put me in a parochial school, a Catholic school, and it, it was good academically. I must have had a bad teacher, however, because by the third grade, I could not read. And my mom had a teacher friend that... Uh, they're just talking about things, and she she was asking a question. Shouldn't he be able to read by now? And she said, "Oh yeah, he's way way behind." So she yanked me out of the school and put me in the public schools. Back then, they were a lot better than they are now. <laughs> so I've always been kind of behind when it came to literature or reading or that sort of thing, and less interested in the humanities and mathematics came a little bit more easy for me. So kind of drifted in it and went into engineering, obviously, later. So, if you find any misspelled words, <laughs> you'll know why. <laughs> yeah, I teach a class at the church that I go to, and the class very often says, is that right? And I look at it, you tell me. <laughs> so... And if I stumble over words and that sort of thing, uh, giving you a little caveat here. Well, let's go ahead and get uh, started. And uh, what I want to do is give you a little bit of an introduction. I've already mentioned that uh, this area of the age of the universe is the most controversial in the whole area. There are three part there are three areas, however that I think you as believers need to have some familiarity with, these three areas in this whole area of creationism or science and scripture, we as believers are in conflict with the present worldview or the present culture in which we live in. And just by way of introduction, the first one is creation versus evolution. And some of this was dealt with last night and some of the other breakout sessions will deal with that but you ought to get a little bit familiar with the issue of creation versus evolution evolution is religion it's based on faith and it takes far more faith to believe in evolution than it does that there had to be a designer an intelligent designer and the Bible identifies that intelligent designer as God himself. And this is a whole area of itself. In fact, what I'm giving you is a summary of a whole seminar that I do, actually a whole course. I teach a course on apologetics and a whole course on scientific apologetics that expands and deals with all of these issues. But this issue, obviously our culture is permeated with evolutionary thinking. So it's good to be familiar with not only evolution, because that's what everybody in our culture virtually believes, or virtually everybody, but we believe that God is a creator and the science backs us up. Science is on our side. In fact, if you think about it, if there is a creator, then everything that you see around you was put together by the creator and it would make sense that uh, the one that created everything is not going to write something in his word, he's the author of the Bible as well, that's going to go contrary to what he has put together in the creation. And there's a tremendous harmony, obviously. So that's a big area. 
We're not going to deal with that in this time frame. I dealt with this with the young people yesterday. Another issue, was there a Genesis flood? And I went into some detail the whole hour on uh, the Genesis flood versus what is generally in our culture accepted that what the findings of historical geology or the claims of historical geology is that uh, the geological layers were laid down over long periods of time. I gave a different model on that and showed that there's overwhelming evidence for a Genesis flood. As you might expect, if God, in fact, brought a judgment, like it says in the Bible, of the nature that's described in Genesis 6 through through 9. So the evidence supports far more, and I think the evidence is overwhelming in support of a Genesis flood as opposed to the interpretation of the secularists. Secularists base historical geology on evolution. So if evolution is the bad starting point, then you're going to get bad results. The issue that we're going to deal with, well, you might say, well, if God is, if the evidence is in our favor, and this is the conclusion of my other talk, we're just going to take it one step further tonight or today. If God is creator, the, the reason the world rejects the evidence the reason the world does not want to accept what we would pr propose is because if there is a creator, then it leaves all men accountable to him. And you know the nature of man. We are depraved, and we do not want to be accountable to anyone. We want to be autonomous. We want to be our own. Uh, we want to push God away. That's just our nature. God has to break through with a gospel message. But our nature is such as that we don't want a creator, so we have to come up with an alternative explanation. The alternative explanation is everything came about by evolution, even though the evidence does not support it at all. Secondly, if there is a flood, like I tried to demonstrate, and it is a real event, and it's historical, and the evidence is overwhelming that there was a flood, why don't people accept that evidence? Well, same reason, except one more step, then all men will face God as judge because that's what the flood is. It's a judgment. So God is not only creator, but he is also judge. And if God is judge, then men must stand before him ultimately. This third issue, the issue of the age of the earth, young versus old, or you might even include universe here because I think it's included, why do men reject the evidence that I'm going to give you? Well, again, in this area, people just want to push God, even if he is a creator, push him as far back in time, as far away as is conceivable in, in people's minds. So this is another issue, and this is a big issue. Unfortunately, within the church, this is also a controversy. The majority of the church, churches, I should say, overall Christianity, and I'm not just talking about liberal Christianity, which essentially it rejects the Bible anyway, and much of liberalism accepts evolution and accepts the idea that there's no evidence for a Genesis flood. I'm not talking about that part of the Christianity. That certainly does not uh, believe in a young earth. I'm talking about evangelical even conservative, Bible-believing, people that believe in inerrancy, that believe in inspiration, hold to a relatively old universe. Okay? What I'm going to do is present the alternative, and as I've already mentioned, this is the minority viewpoint, by far, within the church, within evangelicalism, it's the minority. Make sense? But we're always in the minority. The truth is always in the minority. If the majority are usually going in one direction, remember the gate is wide for those that are perishing. So what I'm going to do, this is a summary, and um, we only have an hour, and I'm not going to complete the biblical evidence. That's what I want to start off with. But this is a summary of what I want to accomplish and some of this I'm going to summarize because of time to do a more detail. Well, I don't know how many hours it takes, but you could do lots of time on 
lots of areas here. I'm going to start off by giving you a little bit of background in terms of history and what's out there in the evangelical church. In other words, what I call compromise views, number one. Number two, and we'll focus mainly on the scriptural evidence. Now, this outline is all on your sheet that was handed out there. I'm going to give you the scriptural evidence, in other words, the support from the Bible. In other words, what does the Bible seem to indicate? And that's the problem that I think those that reject a relatively young earth, uh, they have to wrestle with. So I'm going to devote a little bit more time on that so that you be aware of what people have to do in order to hold an old earth and still hold to what the Bible teaches. Make sense? And that's the problem of accommodating. In other words, accommodating the Scriptures based on man's theories, based on man's ideas, and particularly scientific ideas. You have to accommodate Scripture. You have to force Scripture into a mold. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then I'd like to conclude in the second hour, and we'll probably overlap. I probably won't complete the problems in this hour. But in the second hour, I'll give you a summary of the evidence that supports a relatively young earth. So does science support it? Again, the other views would say, well, the reason we hold to an old earth is because of science. So I want to give you scientific evidence that is available. And I believe, in fact, I'm going to quote a man that, a world-class physicist that worked at Sandia Labs, retired from there. So he used to live here. This was his home. He claims, and he's done research in this area, he claims that 90% of the scientific evidence, 90%, supports a relatively young Earth. So, most of you know a little bit of math, right? How much supports the old Earth? (laughs) 10%. If we have time, what I'd like to do is give you a summary of that 10%, because that is the 10%... That is only what you hear in the media, and that is what is emphasized. And there are some problems from our perspective, but there also are some proposed solutions to some of those scientific problems. And I want to at least expose you to some of that as well. Okay? So that's what we plan to do. The first part in this hour, the second part in the next hour. And this is basically the the issue that we have. Naturalism, in other words, evolutionary thought, evolutionary approaches, says that the earth is about, I hear, 4.5 billion. I don't know how they can be that precise, but, you know, we'll talk about that. Uh, Rounded off to 5 billion, 5 billion years old for the planet. And in terms of the universe, I used to hear 20 billion. For some reason, I'm hearing 16, 15 billion. I don't know if some of the young earth is rubbing off on them. or (laughs) Yeah, what's a few billion once you get into into that range? That is generally the viewpoint. If not 20, somewhere 16, 15 billion years. All right? Now, if you take a conservative approach to the Bible, interpret uh, with a grammatical, historical, contextual approach, we generally call that literal interpretation or a uh, sound hermeneutic. If you take the scriptures, it gives you about 6,000 years. On a very conservative chronology, I'll flash it up there. Obviously, you can give it take a few few days there, a few years maybe. <laughs> uh, 4,143 B.C. for creation. All right. That's supposed to be humorous, but that's all right. <laughs> that's based on uh, Genesis 1 and 2, or the creation account, and also the genealogies in chapter 5 and chapter 11. And so that's where we'll concentrate, uh, particularly Genesis chapter 1. And the big issue are the days of Genesis, literal six-day 
solar days. All right. So that's kind of the, the controversy. Uh, the unfortunate thing, let me go back here. The unfortunate thing is the majority of the church is intimidated with the science and feels that they are forced just intellectually, just rationally to accept the naturalistic viewpoint. Even though those that are old earth within the church that are conservative reject evolution, uh, they feel like the science is too overwhelming to reject the science. And in our culture, you almost sound silly to conceive of the earth as only 6,000 years. So I'm going to reveal my silliness to you. And if you want to go along with it, you can be silly in our culture as well. Okay. Now let me give you a little background here very briefly, very quickly. Number one, before the 1700s, Virtually the entire world had more of a biblical worldview. That doesn't mean that the majority were Christians. I'm not saying that. But the majority at least had a high respect for the Bible. They probably did, the majority did not believe that the Bible was necessarily the Word of God. But they held to virtually a biblical worldview. In other words, most people thought that the world was relatively young up until towards the end of the 17th century, 1700s actually, 1700s. There was a philosopher by the name of Hume that introduced some attacks on that concept, on that idea, and began to lay the groundwork for the idea of longer periods of time. He was a philosopher. He attacks design. He introduced a concept that eventually led to what we describe as uniformitarianism. And I'm going to discuss that as well. Uh, and a fundamental principle that we don't disagree with in nature in that there is stability that you can observe, but the Bible helps us to understand uh, within certain contexts you have stability. Predictability, that's the essence of science. We don't disagree with that. But this idea of uniformity was extended beyond what the Bible speaks of, and we'll get into some of that. But anyway, uh, just briefly, then another lawyer, by the way, you know those lawyers, you got to look out for them, right, Pat? <laughs> Pat's a lawyer. Uh, Hutton introduced a principle of uniformity based on some of Hume's philosophy and eventually eventuated into uniformitarianism. Lyle took uniformity and uh, applied it to the geological layers that you can observe. If you go to the Grand Canyon, we talked about that yesterday. And he proposed this idea, uniformitarianism is nothing more than what we have today has always been. The present, a key phrase here, the present is the key to the past. So if you can uh, scientifically evaluate processes that are going on today, and Lyle did this in the geological area. In other words, how long does it take to lay down a layer of sediment? And by, based on those calculations, all you need to do is take those rates and then project them back, and you come up with an age of something. So this is what Lyle did. And he proposed that uh, the geological layers were not laid down rapidly, but were laid down over millions of years. And I'll show you a chart that is the product of that, that is the standard for today. All right? So you have uniformitarianism, and all it took was a man by the name of Darwin to revive this idea of evolution. Now you have lots of time for things to, quote, evolve, and all he did was take an ancient theory and made it popular, and the rest is history, and our culture is basically basically based on these concepts, evolutionary theory. Make sense? It wasn't until the about the well mid-1950s with Morris and Whitcomb when they wrote the Genesis Flood, the book, and in that book, they proposed a different interpretation of the geological formations and layers. 
and it started a what we describe today as a creationist movement, and we're kind of the beneficiaries of that early work, and a lot of believers that are scientists have added, and there's an abundance of information out there. So none of this is original with me. It comes as a result of just me reading some of these books uh, by people that have gone against the current of the culture. Okay, so that's a brief history. Here's that chart I was alluding to. This is standard. You'll find this in any geology book, whether it's high school or whether it's college or even advanced. It's called the geological column. Now, I explained it. I'm not going to go into detail. I explained it a little bit yesterday again. What those that chart represents, it represents different periods of geological history reconstruction of the historical geologist. And if you notice the numbers, my little pointer here doesn't work, so these numbers here are the estimated number of years in millions. So 60, 40, 50 million years it took to lay down those layers. So you get the accumulation and you end up with 4.5 billion years. Yeah, evolution. Yeah, the whole package. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, we can go off on that. But so this is the uh, kind of the standard interpretation of all the geological layers. And to give you a, a sense of how deep these layers go, if you visit the Grand Canyon, you can observe the, a, a Cambrian layer. It's called the Tapetes Formation. Below that is Precambrian, and it's about a mile deep. In other words, the, the close to the river is about a mile from the top of the canyon to the bottom, and then above that you see all of these formations. Okay, uh, that line between the Cambrian and Precambrian is very important. I think that relates to the Genesis flood, and what I proposed yesterday was. That is the destructive layer that the flood ripped up material and then redeposited these so-called millions of years of sediment. And we have a chronology in the book of Genesis that happened within a little bit over a year, 370 days if you want the exact number there. From the start of the flood to the end of the flood, you have depositing of material towards the end as the flood waters recede. Totally different model. And I tried to show that the evidence is overwhelming that supports that model yesterday. Well, there was no Precambrian layer. It was whatever was there, ripped up everything. Yes, redeposited. Yeah, you got that clear. Okay, compromise views. And I've got to go real quick here. But uh, just so you're aware, These came about because theologians, believers, once geology began, in fact, in the early years of geology, when these ideas began to be introduced, the church did not have an answer. And because these ideas had the aura of science uh, to go against these things, they had a high view of science, and I have a high view of science, but I put scripture above science. Uh, Science intimidated the theological world, if you will. So Christians began to jump through hoops, come up with other explanations, and most of these uh, are very weak, and most of them have been discredited, but you'll still find some of them in our culture. Uh, What's real popular is what's called the day-age theory. In other words, Genesis 1, these are not literal days, These are ages, day-age theory, geological ages. So each day of creation is a geological age. Well, it has immediate problems already. No geologist will yield to that. But it's within the church to try to come up with an explanation. Okay, It misuses the word day, and I'm going to go into detail on it. So we'll come back to that. does not solve the geological issues at all. doesn't solve it. 
and it misinterprets, it uses 2 Peter 3, 8, a day for the Lord is like a thousand years. You know, a day for us is like a thousand years for the Lord. Uh, it misinterprets it, and it takes it out of its context, and it takes it out of the Old Testament context as well. All right? So there's some problems with it. There's a, another compromise view called the gap theory. This is probably one of the most popular. A lot of very conservative Bible scholars in the early 1900s and in that time frame, this was extremely popular. And it's still popular today because Schofield popularized this when he put out his Schofield reference Bible. And most people, you know, Schofield Bible, uh, they, he had notes. Some people didn't distinguish the notes from the text and almost viewed the notes as if they were inspired like the text. So this became very, very popular and in, 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 ingrained in it. Uh, the essence of this is there's a gap uh, between Genesis 1 and 2, or verses 1 and 2, Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. And in that gap, you can put any number of geological periods and ages that you want hopefully solving this so-called contradiction between the Bible and science. Okay? Well, lots of problems. One thing, it accepts evolution, because that's where all of evolution takes place. So, inadvertently, the church was introduced to a new concept called theistic evolution. God is creator, yes. But the science seems to indicate, because of evolution, he must have created using the concepts of evolution. That's theistic evolution. And that's popular in the broader church as well. Okay? So it accepts evolution and it ignores the geological issues. In other words, it just totally ignores them. It doesn't deal with them at all. And it also is not supported by Scripture. The Hebrew does not support the uh, interpretation that is used to try to come up with a gap in there. All right? So you have the gap theory. It's just stretching the Bible or cutting the Bible in half there, or not in half, but putting a long age in there. Uh, and it ends up with theistic evolution. So you have the gap theory. You have progressive creationism. This is probably the most popular viewpoint today, progressive creationism. If you've heard of Hugh Ross, he's the most popular progressive creationist. He, uh, very bright, I think he's a physicist, and he makes, in fact, his whole ministry is basically proposing what's called progressive creationism. What it proposes is that God created, yes, God is creator without a doubt, and he rejects evolution. But what God did is he did it over, in other words, he would create initially and then, uh, so what's described in day one is initial creation, including one one. And then periodically, over long periods of time, he injects in uh, time cre creative acts. And the creative days or the days of Genesis are reflections of those creative days. So God occasionally injects acts of creation. And then towards the end of closer to humanity. He's still talking about millions of years for the creation of man. God injects the creation of man. There's all kinds of problems with that. Okay? It accepts evolution to some degree. It makes God a bumbling God who, oh, I need to add to this creation because things are not quite complete here and that sort of thing. Trial and error. And it's certainly not supported by Scripture. At least a conservative approach to scripture all right uh, days of revelation this viewpoint takes genesis 1 and saying it's not dealing with chronology at all it's not dealing with time in other words what the writer and i believe moses was the writer moses had these visions or moses saw creation in these days so these are just days of revelation not necessarily tied to time. Does that make sense? In other words, they are just what John 
or not John, uh, Moses saw and wrote down. This is what I saw on day one. This is what I saw on day two. And he went through six days of creation. And then he saw God resting on day seven. But they're not chronological. These are just what he saw. Days of revelation. God reveals his creation in six days. Again, it accepts everything in the evolutionary camp. Ignores the geological issues. And it's not supported by scripture. Uh, you'd think we'd give up, right? <laughs> Why don't we try to look at science differently? Why do we have to be intimidated? If God is creator, then science should support us. Well, we still grope, and there's other views as well, but these are the most popular ones that you'll encounter. All right? And what it is, these are essentially doing is reading into the word. The Hebrew word is yom. And they're making that word mean something that I don't think the text intended us to understand. So let's look at that scriptural evidence. And let's start with Genesis 1. Scriptural evidence, the creation account. And number one, uh, I teach hermeneutics, Chafer Seminary. So what I'm going to do is give you a little bit of uh, hermeneutics here, a little explanation on how do you derive meanings of words overall because this is a main point that uh, people will have to deal with when they're interpreting the days in other words how do you interpret them if you do any word study of any word whether it's yom or anything else and if you're you know the hebrew alphabet that's yom there <clears throat> the word for day the hebrew word for day any word study that you do New Testament, Old Testament, you want to understand what the scriptures teach about this particular word. What you do is you develop how that word is used. That's called range of meaning. All right. So let's develop a range of meaning for yom. First of all, it's used in a general sense, not specific. Uh, an example might be, you might say, and it's used in our culture in this way. It's used in the Bible this way. Now, when you're doing a word study, you want to see how does the Bible use this word. And the word is used similar to what we use it in our culture. You might say, in my grandfather's day, all right, you're not talking about he only lived one day, right? You're talking about the 90 years that he lived in that time frame. The word is, in fact, used in that way. And it's used that way in Genesis. It's even used that way in chapter 2. All right? So that's part of how the word is used. It's also used in terms of a long period of time. In fact, uh, similar to what I just illustrated, like an age, it can be used like the age of your father, or your grandfather, etc. It can also be used in terms of six days. And that's probably how it's used in uh, chapter 2, verse, what is it, 4, I think, or 3. In Genesis 1, in day 1, it's used uh, for the light portion of the day, approximately 12 hours. That's how the word is used, right there in the Genesis account. All right? Or it more commonly is used in, in the sense of a solar day or approximately 24 hours, give or take a few minutes, right? That's how the word is used in Scripture. The issue is how is Moses using it in Genesis 1 when he's describing day 1, second day, third day. How is he using it there? And I think he's very specific. Let's take a look at that. Solar days, you start off, if you're doing a word study, and this is hermeneutics, for any word, you start with the primary main usage of that word. How is that word generally used? And then you look, is there anything in the context that steers me to take this word any differently than its normal, normal usage? And in some contexts, you have little clues that say, well, he's not using it in a literal sense, or I'm talking about any word. The context. When we speak, when we communicate, when we write, when people write, 
They give all the clues and the context so you can understand what they're trying to communicate. All right? And that's true of the Bible. That's basic hermeneutics. 95% of the Old Testament usages of Yom is in the sense of a solar day. That's your starting point. Over 2,000 usages. So, you start with that. And then you say, is there anything in the context here that leads me away from that? And by the way, if you take any other view, the only thing that leads you away from that is there's nothing in the context that does that. What does that is uh, external preconceived ideas. What does that is, well, the science doesn't seem to fit here. That's the driver. All right, that's very important. Oftentimes in Scripture, when, when writers introduce a concept or a doctrine or something, and this is particularly true in the book of Genesis because you have, you have the beginnings of all things, including all doctrine. In the book of Genesis, you can find a first-use concept, or we can call that even the law of first use. When a writer introduces a concept, he tends to define it or explain what he means. And that's exactly what we have in verse 5, I think. I don't know how Moses could be clearer. I don't know how he could have uh, explained things in a more clear way. God called the light day. There's that usage I told you about. In that same context, he's defining, or you, you have a little clue here. He's calling the, the light part of the day approximately 12 hours. He's calling it day. So it's used in that sense, even there. And the darkness he called night. So he's distinguishing night and day. And when we distinguish a night part and a daytime part, what are we talking about? We're talking about approximately 24 hours. And then he says, if that's not clear enough, there was evening and there was morning one day. Everything in the context screams out when he says, when he's defining the way he is describing these days, six days, even though in the context he's using a slightly different usage, he's defining one day with uh, that context. Make sense? So you really have to stretch what Moses is trying to tell you here to get something different than one day. Okay, so we have the primary usage, the context drives it, first use. And if you have qualifiers, evening, morning, generally that's a clue that he means literal days here. You have numbers. Uh, whenever you have qualifiers like that, almost exclusively uh, of the 2,000 usages or the 95%, it's referring to a solar day. Uh, there's other terms. In Genesis chapter 3, Moses uses olam. That's a Hebrew word. All of you can pronounce that, right? You got it? <laughs> olam. And in general context, it uh, refers to anything that is long or extended. And in a time frame, it uh, refers to extended or long time or long periods of time. It could even be used in the sense of long ages. Now, when it's talking about long ages and it's talking about the Bible, it's not talking about millions of years, but it's talking about perhaps hundreds or even thousands of years uh, in a time context. Moses uses that word. So Moses could have used that word in Genesis 1 had he wanted to. If he wanted to convey an idea of long ages, he could have used olam. He uses it in Genesis 3. All right? There's also another Hebrew word, arek. You got that one already. I don't even have to pronounce it for you, right? Uh, same idea, something that is long, something that is extended, and in a time context, long time. Moses uses that one in Deuteronomy, so he was familiar with that word as well. He could have used that word had he intended us to understand long periods of time. Get the point? I think what... Moses intended was to communicate the idea is that he thinks that what God is revealing is that he revealed in six literal days and rested on a seventh day. Okay. 
Now, there's also other evidence from the Old Testament that we can look at. For example, in the Old Testament, we have Old Testament support. Just the biblical chronologies themselves, you have to really stretch. You have to inject periods in the genealogies. Then you run into all kinds of other problems as well. Well, now what do I do with the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke's gospel? It goes all the way to Adam. Luke doesn't seem to inject many, many gaps in there. Now, there's one issue with one of the uh, the names in there, but that's one. You know, you have to have, how do you inject millions of years in there? Uh, you have a real problem there, the biblical chronology. We could talk a lot about that. There's the biblical chronology. There's creation, 4,143 B.C., flood about 2487. If you keep a strict conservative interpretation of the numbers in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, and they left Egypt in 1774, not 1776 A.D., but 1774 B.C., <laughs> all B.C.'s. All right. Uh, I'm going to skip over this because I'm running out of time here, but... But basically, what happened at the flood, the ages of the patriarchs, and you can plot it. By the way, that's an exponential curve, if you wanted to see what an exponential. Uh, that was used last night in, one, in uh, Mike's session. Uh, the ages, about 900 before the flood. The red line there is the flood. And then the ages decrease exponentially to what we have today. And I could explain that, but we don't have time to do that. So the biblical chronology, this is the biblical chronology right there. A little over 4,000 years. If you take a literal approach to interpretation. You have creation, you have flood, you have Abraham. Uh, and by the time you get to Moses, the dates pretty much agree with secular history. They might vary, even though Moses would be denied in terms of a lot of what happened in the book of Exodus. So just biblical time frame. I'm going to skip over this, how we get, how I got that number. This just explains that. Other texts kind of give us a chronology. So we have a, a chronology that the Bible gives us, and it's specific. When you get to Genesis uh, 7, we have a precise day. In other words, it gives us the year of Moses' life, and from that you can put together when the, the, the flood began. Gives us the year, the month, and the day. Okay? So it gives us precise chronology, and I think the Bible does that. Gives us the same thing at the end of the flood. Okay, so there's no gaps. There's no gaps uh, in the genealogies, and I think I'll skip over this as well. I'm just summarizing what you have in these genealogies. It gives us the history of these people, and it uses a word that is translated, this is the history of this person, Con conveys that idea. Uh, the age of the father at birth, and you have a lot of little Hebrew clues in there that uh, we have a chronology that they're doing. And there's clear limitations. You can't inject as many ages as you need. Besides, you need too many to be able to make, make anything work. And I mentioned uh, the genealogy of Jesus, and not only the genealogy, but Jesus, as it was mentioned also last night, when uh, he's asked a question by the Pharisees concerning marriage, he says, well, and the, or divorce, actually, and he lays down kind of some foundations for marriage from the beginning and he goes, he's alluding to Genesis chapter 1. And then he talks about marriage, uh, describing uh, chapter 2, verse 24, I believe, in the same context. So he groups Genesis 1 and 2 there, and he puts Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. Not after several ages of injections, so you have to deal with what Jesus says as well. So there's a lot of problems with that. Here's a powerful argument as well. Uh, the fourth commandment. Remember, the Ten Commandments, God verbally revealed these things. Moses had direct revelation, and 
Initially, they were inscribed in stone by the finger of God. So Moses didn't manipulate this statement here. The fourth commandment, the basis for the work week and the basis for a Sabbath, the fourth commandment deals with observing. The nation of Israel was to observe the Sabbath. And God says in six eras, right? (laughs) For in six days, the Lord made creation, made the heavens and the earth, the sea, if you're confused at all, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, if you read the surrounding context, it's instituting the the Sabbath observance. And this is God speaking. Now, if he wanted us to understand those days of Genesis differently, he could have said eras there, or he could have used olam again. But God says days. Now, you might say, uh, the question is not God needing millions of years to create. Had God so chosen, he could have said, just like he said on day one, he said, let there be light, and what? There was light, immediacy of fulfillment. God could just as easily have said, let there be a universe, and what? There would be a universe. So the issue is that God didn't need time to create. So why did he even take six days? Well, I think because he is establishing a pattern for the work week. God doesn't need rest either. But it's a pattern because God uh, has no needs. God is self-existent. He doesn't get tired. So he wasn't exhausted after six days of creation. He rested. The whole thing was anticipating not only the nation of Israel, but anticipating the needs of man to establish a day of rest for man, not for God, for man. So he created in six days, not because he needed six days, but because he is establishing a pattern. That's what the sixth commandment is telling us there. So you have to manipulate that passage. Okay? And when you get to the New Testament, just uh, real quickly here, you have New Testament support. In uh, Romans 5, 12 through 14, Paul says that as a result of sin, what comes? Death. And what the whole argument that Paul is making theologically is basically there's no death before sin. The fall of man radically changed everything. In fact, in a couple of my courses, I make the statement that at the fall of man, the rest of the Bible is world history. World history is a record of God reversing the effects of the fall. Biblically, World history, the rest of it, is God reversing it. He will not complete that reversal until the end of the last period in human history. If you're premillennialist, that's called the millennial kingdom. God will complete that redemptive process. And that redemptive process involves nature. Be restored, okay? So if death comes with the first sin... All those other views, those compromised views, you have death. You have death of animals before Adam and Eve. Goes against Romans 5. All right, that's one thing. We start preaching here, right? Got to be careful. Can't preach. Uh, The rest of the New Testament, uh, other writers, for example, in fact, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, has one of the clearest biblical arguments against the concept of uniformitarianism. And in one of the courses I teach, I spend a lot of time with that, developing a whole biblical foundation for science. And a lot of it is based on what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, the scoffers are going to say there's no second coming. You know, where's the second coming? And what's their argument? Everything has always been like it is today. I I mean, we don't. 
I mean, how can we expect something so spectacular, so radical as the second coming? Peter says they overlook that God intervened in time and made radical changes in the whole universe. One, the fall. Two, the flood. And he uses that, those two examples. Well, he doesn't use the fall, but he talks about the original creation. Creation, uh, re- alluding to chapter 1. So the rest of the New Testament and the other writers as well accept the biblical chronology when they refer to Adam and Eve. Uh, it doesn't contest the chronology that we have in the book of Genesis. And Jesus himself, I already gave you some of the examples of Jesus, his genealogy for one, and that uh, Matthew 19 passage where he's dealing with uh, uh, the issue of divorce. Okay, And there's other evidence as well. So it's an issue of properly interpreting the text. When you read things into the text, that's called eisegesis. You want to avoid that. Our tendency is to read things in the text because God expects certain things of us and sometimes we don't want to change. So we manipulate passages to make them say what we want them to say. That's eisegesis. We want to avoid that. And all the other views have to inject this idea of millions of years and impose it on the text. Just kind of a humorous thing here. Uh, That cartoon, uh, shattering their old earth assumptions. They have old earth assumptions, but they're shaken because of the evidence here. (laughs) And in this case, the cartoon, the evidence is just that the world is falling apart. So the Bottom of the caption, actually the way the world is falling apart, it probably was only created in six days. Notice the assumptions that they have that it's long ages. It's just to keep you awake. Okay, so the conclusion from uh, the evidence, the biblical chronology cannot be harmonized with evolutionary time. If you try, what suffers is the Bible. That's my point. Got it? Okay. Give me a moment here to get too much on one of these slides, and sometimes they crash if I put too many things up there. I thought I had it already pulled up. I must have forgotten. Okay, we just completed that portion, so now we're going to look at the problems of accommodating. When you try to force, and what I'm talking about here is when you try to force the Bible into the current world uh, view in terms of science, uh, there's all kinds of problems there. And like I said, this is we'll get as far as we can on this portion, then we'll pick it up in the next hour. Uh, those of you that want to go to another session, I guess you'd, sorry, <laughs> apologize ahead of time. <clears throat> okay, so young earth versus old earth, problems with accommodation, number one, and I hope you've already picked this up, you have a problem with hermeneutics. In other words, the fundamental way that we interpret Scripture. Right away, you, you're on shaky hermeneutical grounds. You have to, In fact, most evangelicals, they will be consistent in their hermeneutics when it deals with most issues in the Bible. But when it comes to Genesis chapter 1 or even Genesis, the early chapters, they have to modify their hermeneutics. All right? We want to be consistent in our hermeneutics. And by the way, Theologians, that's why we have so much controversy at the end as well. All of the views on eschatology or the study of end things, the reason you have so many views is because there's a lot of hermeneutical problems that are are driving some of those other conclusions. 
So you need to take my eschatology course as well. <laughs> and you'll become premillennial, pre-tribulational, futurist, and what other qualification we need to add to that. All right. So basically hermeneutics. The problem with hermeneutics, interpreting Scripture, that's what hermeneutics is all about. This is key. This is the most fundamental of the hermeneutical principles. It comes out of a hermeneutics textbook written by Mickelson. He says the following. To find out the meaning of a statement for an author, in other words, if you're reading the Bible, you're reading the statement of some author, in this case we're reading Moses, to find out a meaning of a statement for the author and for the first hearers, or readers, not everybody had access to Scripture, so most people heard the Scriptures in the synagogue or in the church, to find out the meaning that the author intended, that's what we're talking about, this is basic hermeneutics, and also how did that original audience understand what that author was communicating, that's the basic principle of hermeneutics. And then after you understand the meaning, now you can thereupon transmit that meaning to modern readers. All those compromised views have to abandon this. In other words, they're not looking at what did Moses intend. What they have to do is inject, well, the text must have to say this because of all these scientific uh, ideas out here. It's not, it overlooks that we have to go back to what did Moses intend. That's why I spent that time on verse 5, where I don't know how Moses could have been clearer when he defines what a day is. All right? So hermeneutics are at stake here. A lot of uh, theologians say, well, uh, Genesis is not historical. It, it's, it, it's, it's poetic. This is common. Uh, it's poetic. Well, poetry has particular, this is part of hermeneutics here, has particular characteristics. The main characteristic of, I'll ask you, what's the main characteristic of Hebrew poetry? Anyone want to suggest something? No? You all need to take the course. <laughs> My sister here took it, right? <laughs> Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so you need to answer. Oh, okay, I won't put you on the spot. The major characteristic of Hebrew poetry is not symmetry. They'll talk about symmetrical three days here three and three days kind of symmetrical. It's not rhythm. It's not rhyme. The major characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. It's a good thing, because a, a Hebrew poet, we would have a difficult time translating if rhyme were the driver like in English poetry. Because you'd have to find an equivalent Hebrew word to translate one word and a, an equivalent English word that rhymed with that Hebrew, you know, uh, with the English word that you translated. That would be virtually impossible. So rhyme is a m very minor characteristic. What is the prominent characteristic is parallelism. And what we mean that when you read your Psalms or your Proverbs, Song of Solomon, much of the prophets write in poetry. Look for one line. In other words, line one will be parallel with line two. And there may, may be a line three, but they'll be in parallel. And what we mean by that, if it's synonymous parallelism, Line one is synonymous with line two. In other words, line one is a repetition of the same idea of line, or line two is a repetition of line one. Make sense? That's synonymous. You, in the Proverbs, you have a lot of antithetical parallelism. One line, you have a statement, and then in the second line, you have a contrast or the opposite. That's parallelism. Do you have a quick... Yeah, well, yes, different words. That's poetry. Yeah. Hebrew poetry. Yeah. 
And if it's synonymous, in other words, there's different kinds of parallelisms. If it's synonymous, then the second line, same idea, different words. If it's antithetical, and there's different, there's others, but the most common are synonymous and antithetical. If it's antithetical, then the second line is the, either the contrast or the opposite sometimes. In other words, the, the wise man does such and such, but the fool does this, that idea, parallelism. Well, uh, you have metaphorical language. The point I'm making, there's no parallelism in uh, the days of creation. That's a major characteristic. And there's a lot of other things. Uh, I'm not going to go over all these, but these are some other characteristics. There's a, there's a problem with the verbs. Uh, a whole computer analysis was done of the verbs in a study that was more of a scientific study, but they included this as well. And the characteristics of the verb, the Hebrew verbs in Genesis 1, almost 99.9% are different from those characteristics of Hebrew poetry. So Hebrew poetry. See, I think we were supposed to end at 20 after. Why don't we, uh, let's stop here. Sorry about that. And I see people already leaving, so... (laughs) Thank you.